Escape Pod 89 January 18, 2007 Today's story, Being There, by Jack Skillingstead Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. Today we're sponsored by Dreaming Mind Hand Bookbinding. You've heard me talk about them before, and we'll have more great things they're doing after the story. So, I got an email from Mike Resnick the other day with the text of a column he does with Barry Maltzberg for the Cephwa Bulletin. The subject was Electronic versus Print Markets. The argument's a pretty familiar one, and I won't rehash their positions. My own feeling is that we need both for a healthy genre, so that readers of every preference can find what they're looking for. Here's what bothers me. The column mentioned the plummeting sales figures for the big three magazines, Analog, Asimov's, and FNSF. They're all in more trouble than I realized. Newsstand sales in the United States for all three are at about 4,000 copies and shrinking. And circulation... It startled me to realize that Escape Pod's download numbers per story, between 15 and 20,000, are already ahead of FNSF's circulation and catching up to Asimov's. Now, you might think that would be cause for celebration, but it actually worries me. Because science fiction needs the magazines. For that matter, Escape Pod needs the magazines. We run more reprints than original stories, so we rely on them for source material, and having them on the bookstore shelves is visible, physical marketing for short fiction that we can't match. When you can find them there, which is less and less often. I've said before, our mission is to bring people into science fiction, and short fiction in particular. And I've said my favorite feedback is when people tell me, I didn't think I had time to read, but after hearing some Escape Pod stories, now I'm subscribed to... whatever. Well, I have to own up. I've been kind of a hypocrite about that. As of yesterday, I wasn't subscribed to any SF magazines myself. My excuse was I didn't have time to read them. Today I subscribed to four and I'm going to read them. I've got an obvious business reason for that. I might find stories that weren't submitted to us. But more important, if I'm going to keep saying the magazines matter, then I need to support them. And if you like what you're hearing in Escape Pod, well, I'm going to keep asking you to tell your friends and donate to us, but I'm also going to start posting in the show notes where the story originally appeared. So if you want more stories like ours, you'll know where to look. Check out those magazines and those anthologies. Give your support to the ones running the stories you like. And then we all win. Our story this week appeared in Asimov's in 2005. We present Bean There by Jack Skillingstead. Mr. Skillingstead lives in the Pacific Northwest and has over a dozen critically acclaimed short stories to his credit. His story Dead Worlds was also a 2004 finalist for the Sturgeon Award for Best Short Fiction. The story is read for us by Jim Van Verth of the Vintage Gamer Podcast. He talks about the classic old games, board games, RPGs, etc., that you might barely remember now, but you'd have fun with if you rediscovered them. He's also a co-reader for Mer Lafferty's fiction serial Heaven, which you can find at patiobooks.com. So, pull yourself an iced triple venti vanilla skim whip latte and a comfy chair. It's story time. Been There by Jack Skillingstead I fell flat on my ass, stunned, jaw unhinged, gaping at the thing. Implications piled up fast. My gaze wandered briefly off the marble block. Then, I fell again, 
inside this time as my interior order shifted, irrevocably perhaps. It was a light bulb moment, and cravenly I wished I could pull a chain and turn it off. Thanks a lot, Amy. Happy anniversary. I sat on the floor, and it sat on the wheeled mover's cart, notes still taped to the side facing me, a sheet of printer paper with red sharpie lettering three inches high. This is yours, Bert. My mighty man. Go back two months. Pick a Tuesday in May, a nice spring morning. There might have been birds twittering happily, the way they do. I had the front door of Bean there propped open, plus all the windows on the sidewalk side. 7 a.m. of a twittering, fine morning. Amy said, Wow. Wow what? Slanting sunlight had discovered beaches of dust on the round tabletops, and I was wiping them down ahead of the clamoring horde. A kid in Ashland levitated his bike, Amy said. Can you believe it? No. Grouch. I'm always grouchy before coffee. She snorted, but charmingly, not like a warthog or anything. By my count, you've already had a cappuccino and two Americanos. You ought to save some for the paying customers. It was my turn to snort. <laughs> paying customers? Are you trying to be funny? Besides, I meant before I sell any coffee. She hmmed. Her attention riveted back on the laptop. She hunched over it, elbows planted on the counter, fingers pronged in her pixie hair the pert little behind that had launched a thousand or so of my ships, aimed in my direction on the black vinyl swivel stool. Come on, I said. Nobody's levitated anything, not even in Assland. Assland? She smirked over her shoulder. Ashland! Ashland! What are you reading, anyway? The Weekly World News? Reuters. At which moment, the clamoring horde entered Bean there. He was wearing a blue button-down shirt, crisp khakis, and brown loafers, accessorized with a briefcase and gold earring. Double tall, two percent, he said. Amy got behind the bar and pulled it. I took her place on the stool and scrolled through the Reuters story. In front of witnesses, adorable Samuel Welch, age nine, had purportedly swept his BMX bike into the high altitudes of a neighbor's poplar. Never mind that one of the witnesses was an off-duty state patrol officer. Six months ago, this story would have been relegated to the pseudo-news, but, with the harbingers among us, anything, any damn thing at all, had seemed to become possible, if not explicable. Amy kept glancing in my direction, so I tried not to look too interested in the story. It's happening, she said, sing-songy on her way to the freshly de-beached table where the C.H. had seated himself. Don't get crazy on me, I sing-song back. I'd had crazy in my life, plenty of it. An alcoholic father and a bipolar sister. Dad had been a maintenance drinker, and not a mean one, but even a happy drunk is still a drunk, and if you live with one, especially if he's your parent, you'd better gird yourself for two levels of life. The level that occurs on the surface, and that everyone sees, which is the presentation level, and the private level that occurs mostly behind closed doors and makes you feel like the world is a wobbly and uncertain place. I was 14 when a stroke killed my mom, and Dad tumbled over the line into a realm of sodden self-pity and violent outbursts. At this point, toss in the bipolar sister, the older sister who up until then had been your rock of stability, and see where that gets you. Laurie had began to see the world in a very different way and was vocal about it, veering toward the occult and a perspective two shades to the left of sane. 
Yeah, I knew crazy. Guys like me grow up obsessed with normalcy and order. Or we grow up to be little chaos mavens ourselves. As a kid, I watched TV obsessively. It was my escape hatch. I liked Disney, especially the old black-and-white footage they sometimes showed of the early days. That was a world in order, and Uncle Walt was like a cool Mr. Rogers. To me, he was, anyway. When I grew up, I found another safe obsession in my Java joint, being there. Later, for balance, I found Amy, though emotionally she wasn't as safe as a coffee bar. Then, the Harbingers arrived. You call it crazy, Amy said. I call it evolution, with a capital E. The famous news clips seen around the world, the aliens arrived neither as an invading force nor as beneficent galactic pals. By their own description, they were harbingers. Famous network interviewer. Harbingers of what? Alien. Evolution. Speaking of trees, the aliens somewhat resembled gnarled and rootless specimens. Those viewers who had devoted their attention to the minute analysis of the clip liked to assert that after uttering the word evolution, the alien had smiled an enigmatic and very zenish smile. Of course, the harbingers mostly communicated telepathically, and there was even debate as to whether they had mouths. I guess you could point to the wardish seam midway up the trunk that constantly oozed some kind of thick sap and call that a mouth. Evolution. Capital E. It had become a movement. Amy even had one of the ubiquitous E t-shirts. Not the Ralph Lauren version, though. Seriously, she said, laying her arm across my shoulders. There are stories like that almost every day. You can't deny it. Look, I'm just a humble businessman in a business that's gotten too humble. Bert. Yes. Oh, never mind. The C.H. finished his latte, folded his Wall Street Journal neatly, and replaced it in his briefcase. The stories are all bunk, he said, smartly snapping chrome latches and standing up. He was a little flushed around the hairline. And if you ask me, there aren't any aliens either. It's just some kind of... Some kind of, Amy said. Mass hallucination. Whatever. It was true that some people claimed they were unable to quite see the aliens, most notably the senior senator from Ohio. Who could forget his famous Smoke and Mirrors press conference? And everybody commented on the soap bubble quality of their ships. In my opinion, the CH said, everybody has to get back to normal before it's too late. And then he went out among the Twittered, and it was almost an hour before the next customer wandered in. People are scared, I said at the other end of the day, standing in boxers by the window of my apartment, only a couple of blocks from my rapidly drowning venture. Some people are, Amy said. Are you? It wouldn't be manly to admit it, I said. Besides, I'm not really. She moved, a silky whisper of girl flesh and sheets. She didn't say anything, and I felt compelled to fill in the gap. Somehow... Amy and I had lost the comfort of easy silences. The fear thing, that's just my pet theory. Remember at first there was an uptick in business? People wanted to talk, gather, bond. Have a cup of joe, Amy said. Right, but now they're, I don't know, hunkered down. 
You can only take so much weirdness before you have to shut it off. Not everyone has to shut it off, Amy said. Maybe some of those hunkering people are busy. I turned from the window. Amy was looking at the ceiling, fingers laced behind her head, the sheet about her waist and her breasts. So lovely. Busy doing what? I said. Evolving. I had to ask. We weren't married, but we had anniversaries. One arrived in the midst of the consummate weirdness, that pervasive sense of unreality, plus the fact that I was furiously dog-paddling in a sea of red ink, had conspired to short-circuit my memory. Happy anniversary, Amy said on the phone. Oh, shit. Sweet talker. Aim, I'm really sorry. You can make it up to me. Anything. Come over now. She had borrowed a friend's little Toyota pickup. Amy's apartment building, which was old and consisted of only 12 units, provided each tenant with his or her own mini-garage, so narrow and shallow they were really car boxes with barely enough room to open the driver's door, which didn't matter to Amy since she didn't own a vehicle and used her car box for storage. The door was up and the interior space had been cleaned out, presumably to make room for the thing in the back of the yellow Toyota. A block of white marble. That pickup was riding so low and at springs that it was a wonder that the rear wheels could turn. Isn't it beautiful? Amy said. Very pretty. Paperweight? I'm going to sculpt it, silly. She was beaming. Cool. Your skepticism does not affect me. I'm not being skeptical, but don't you think it might be easier to start with something less intimidating? Not to mention cheaper, like clay? I am not in the least bit intimidated, and I got a great deal at the quarry works. Kind of an installment plan. They didn't seem to care. Everybody's so spaced out. The block was three feet on a side and weighed approximately 27 million pounds. A couple of guys from Amy's building helped us muscle it around. Transferring the thing from the Toyota's tailgate, dangerous squeak of hinges, to the mover's cart threatened to give us all hernias. Even pushing it into the garage was not easy. Once it started rolling, okay, but getting it started was murder. We three he-men bent at the knees, put our shoulders into it, and made like Sisyphean triplets. Amy was like one of those dilettantes I imagine must inhabit old French novels. During our three-year relationship, she had been a painter, a writer, a juggler, and a chef. Brief enthusiasms that burn bright, then dim to forgotten clinkers. When I met her, she was waiting tables for a living. We hit it off, and I hired her to help me with being there. After that, one thing led to the inevitable other, and we became much more than partners in caffeine. At 32, this was the longest relationship I'd ever managed. When the other guys left, I wiped the sweat out of my eyes and asked, What put you into sculpting, anyway? It's funny, Amy said. I had a dream about it, and when I woke up, I thought, Why not? But that isn't the funny part. The funny part is that I hadn't been asleep. I just thought I was. She hugged me and kissed my mouth. You're my mighty man, she said. Mighty man could use a cold beer. Come up to my lair, then. I did, but not for beer. News clippings taped to the wall of Amy's garage slash sculptor's studio. From the Associated Press, originally reported in the Memphis Herald Tribune, June 5th, 2005. Tupelo woman teleports. 
Candace McCoy, a 46-year-old housewife from Tupelo, paid an unusual visit to Elvis Presley's Graceland Mansion yesterday when she unaccountably materialized in the jungle room before an eyewitness, security guard Joseph Lytell. Says Lytell, The air got kind of dark and ripply. Then she sort of stepped through. Mrs. McCoy, who appeared in a state of shock and was transported to Mercy Hospital, kept saying, I just love Elvis. From Reuters, June 17, 2005. Astronaut claims moonwalk, 30 years late. Former Apollo 13 commander James Lovell today announced that he had long last walked on the surface of the moon. Lovell, 77, said he had not required any life-sustaining equipment and his mode of transport was, quote, nothing more complicated than the simple desire to be there. As evidence, Commander Lovell offered his bedroom slippers, the bottoms of which were caked with a gray talc-like powder. Speaking on condition of anonymity, a source at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Houston, Texas, confirmed that the powder is indeed moon dust, though there is no official word on that conclusion. Lovell, appearing on the front lawn of his Palm Springs home in a white t-shirt with a large black letter E on the front, described his journey as an evolutionary experience apparently referring to the enigmatic statement of the Harbingers. The view from Fra Mauro was transcendental, said Lovell. From the Associated Press, Dead Man Singing, Jerry Garcia performed live for the first time since his death in 1994. Tom Petty, performing at Washington State's Gorge Amphitheater, announced a special guest. Garcia then ambled onto the stage wearing a tie-dyed E-T-shirt and an acoustic guitar. There were cheers, but also some screams from those closest to the stage, and at least three concert-goers fainted and required medical attention. I was sleeping over at Amy's and woke up, terrified. It must have been a nightmare. I don't know. The Madrona outside her bedroom window cast a pale shadow over the bed, and I thought of the Harbingers, the hideous physicality of them. It was two o'clock in the morning, Aim was not in the bed. I pulled on a pair of jeans and didn't bother tying my shoes. The door of the garage was raised about a quarter way for air. Bright light spilled out. I ducked under the partially raised door. Hot halogen lights on tripod stands illuminated the marble block. Aim's face glowed with a sheen of sweat. Bert! I had a bad dream or something. Poor baby. Well, I've had a breakthrough. Good. It's the tools. What about them? I was using the wrong ones. Look at this. She meant the block. I looked. To my eye, it appeared pretty much the same as it had the day we offloaded it from the pickup truck. Though, I could tell she had hacked at it a little. A few fragments of marble lay scattered around the stool, and the face of the block had been scarred in a minor way. Look through it, she said. I can't look through it, for Christ's sakes, Aim. But you can, she said. It's like anything else, really. I mean, it's even like boxing. What? Sure. Same mental thing in a way. Like you throw the punch through, as if the jaw wasn't even there. And it's not. Neither's the marble. I mean, it's there, of course, but also it's not there. And if it's not, well, then you can throw your punches right on through. You can do anything. Anything. Amy, come on. Don't be afraid. I'm not afraid. Honey.
She got up and came to me and hugged me. It's all right. I fought it, but the moat around my heart filled with tears and I sobbed into Amy's hair. I want everything to be normal again. Darling, I know. It's okay. It really is. But it wasn't. The rational world tilted, threatening chaos, and my anchor was talking phantom punches. It's accelerated evolution, she said, excited. You know, all the little greys and the crop circles and UFOs and synchronicity and deja vu. Just all of it. Those things are projections. The evolutionary psyche of human potential, manifesting in consort with the conscious universe. Do you see? Oh, I'm not saying it right. But, listen, you didn't think real aliens looked like X-Files puppets, did you? She laughed. (laughs) The Harbingers are real. All the stuff happening now is real. It's going to get us before it's too late, to get as many of us going as possible, before we completely fuck over the planet and the whole human race. We were still holding each other, but now it was like we were two separate people. And it didn't matter that I had been inside of her countless times, and we had spoken every living shred of our lives to each other. She was just somebody I was holding. In her excited voice, I heard my sister's delusional rantings, while Dad hunted drunkenly for his car keys. Don't, Bert, Amy said. You're going away. Please don't do that. You could be so close if you wanted to be. I continued holding her, but the good between us was gone. There wasn't a damn thing I could do about it. I don't think I was afraid. I don't know that fear had anything to do with it. It's like being shut up in a little room, Amy said. A room with no windows and a closed door. And it's fine because you don't know you're in a little room. You think you're in the middle of the world. But what if you knew? What if all of a sudden there was a window? and you could see that there was a universe of marvels right outside, and all you had to do was open the door, because it's not locked or anything. It's just a door, waiting for the person in the room to wake up enough to open it. All this while she looked earnestly into my face, her eyes shining. I said, Aim, I'm so tired. Most people weren't on board for the evolution, and things got pretty bad. The end is nigh contingent. Economic collapse. Suicides. Lots of suicides. By July, I'd given up opening Bean there. I just wanted to sleep. Perchance, not to dream. Then, reality snapped back, and I woke one morning with some kind of hangover. And, unknown to me, all my recent memory furniture drastically rearranged. Harbingers? Never heard of them. The natural response to hangover is aspirin and coffee. I dressed grabbed my keys, and strolled down to being there to open the doors, only vaguely recalling that hard times and some kind of throbbing apathy had compelled me to close the place for a few days. Open it, and they will come. I guess I wasn't the only one with a hangover. I worked my ass off that first day, riding a caffeine bullet train to stay focused. Amy was not around, and I sorely missed her. What in hell had we been fighting about, anyway? I closed up at seven, after a nice relaxing 12-hour day. My close sign depicted a sad little coffee cup with wavy steam hair. I got in my cell and called Amy because whatever we had been fighting about wasn't worth it. Dimly, I seemed to recall some kind of tiff over her latest artistic indulgence. She picked up on the second ring. May I speak with Ms. Rodan, please? Funny guy. Aim, I'm sorry. For what? 
I, uh, don't know. She laughed, sounding extra perky and normal and non-pissed off. So, how's it going? I said. If I come over, will you lure me upstairs with the promises of showing me your erotic statues? You've got the only erotic stoneware I'm interested in, mister. I am so there. And later, during a wine and underwear moment in her kitchenette, I said, I could really use you at being there tomorrow. Teasing, like you use me today. With variations, only not as slippery, and you'll have to pull expressives, too. Aim, business is picking up in a major way. I can't even believe I closed down for a while. I must have been nuts. She was quiet a while and easy within herself. I was the one with jitters all of a sudden. On the way over, it had occurred to me that I wanted to marry Amy. That I'd always wanted to. It was nothing other than the fear that had kept us in separate apartments, that allowed our lives to intersect in work and lovemaking, but not in the long, sweet hall of committed love itself. My fear, not hers. Amy was fearless in all things. So, I jacked myself up to ask her, but before I could get the words out, she dropped a safe on my head. Bert, I think I'm going to do some traveling, see some things, maybe do a little good in the world. You're joining the Peace Corps? I didn't know what she was talking about, and I struggled to keep the irritation out of my voice. No, silly, more of a private thing. I thought we were partners. I couldn't even mention the marriage thing. Suddenly it wasn't irritation I felt. My throat tightened down with emotion. We could still be pards, she said, taking my hand. But you'd have to be unafraid to come with me, Bert. I don't know what you're talking about. Where are you going, really? Bert, what if there was no time or space? And if you wanted to be somewhere, wherever and whenever, you could just be there? What would you pick? What would make you feel safe and happy? It wasn't what she said exactly. It was some upheaval within myself. I wanted to cry, but didn't. Does opening day at Disneyland count? I said, thinking I was being sarcastic. She laughed. Sure. Okay, I pick that. Now, can we talk sense? Won't there be a lot of people? She said. Yeah, but it's the happiest place on earth, so they'd all be happy, right? Aim, come on, don't go, please. I'm sorry, Bert. She hugged me and I wanted to melt into her, but that wasn't happening. I finished my sculpture, she said. I want to give it to you. Going away present? Thanks. Shush. Nobody goes away anywhere, not really. I love you. Let's call it the anniversary present, okay? Sure, okay. Don't be sad. She had to be kidding with that one. I called the next day, but she didn't answer. After I hung the clothes sign out, I walked over to her apartment. A white envelope with my name printed on it was taped to the outside of her door. I ripped the envelope open, but all the note said was, Don't forget your present. Love, Amy. That damn rock. The garage was completely bare except for the marble block pushed into the corner on its rolling cart. The air smelled dry, and the cement walls held the heat in. The last of the evening sunlight fell short of the block, which, in shadow at least, appeared as unworked and raw as the last time I'd seen it, its blunt face only slightly scarred by Amy's amateur chiseling. 
A sheet of printer paper was taped to the block. The sheet had been written on, but I couldn't decipher it from where I stood. And I didn't want to get any closer. I just didn't. The daylight terminator crept across the oil-stained floor, almost to the toes of my shoes, before I imagined Amy whispering, Don't be afraid. But I was afraid. Nevertheless, I took a tentative, shuffling step into the shadow, then another, and then I was close enough to read the paper. This is yours, Bert, my mighty man. And something about Ames' familiar jokey intimacy took the hex off. It impelled me forward. Close up, Amy's sculpture was as artless as any random hunk of stone you might happen to stumble upon. Wondering if there was something chiseled into the side facing the wall, I bent my back and braced my feet to pull it around, and instead fell flat on my ass, because the thing on that cart weighed no more than a basket of feathers. It kept rolling around after I fell, and stopped with the sheet of paper facing me again. I sat stunned for a while, then turned my hands up and looked at them. White, eggshell-like flakes clung to the sweat on my fingers. I crawled over to the block and reached out with the spread fingers of my right hand. The outer shell of the sculpture fell away with an airy crackle where I touched it. I brushed my trembling hands over the block like a palsied conjurer, and it collapsed in an avalanche of rice-paper-thin marble flakes, as if it had been held together by nothing more substantial than a hopeful thought. What remained was something like a Christmas ornament, one fashioned from and held up by polished marble nets of filamentous intricacy, as if spider-spun. Amy had created this wonder inside the block, which was impossible. An impossible artifact from that newly forgotten world of teleporting housewives and stumpy, non-deciduous aliens, of evolutionary human consciousness. Capital E. Blah. A worm uncoiled in my stomach. The room seemed to sway, and I had nothing to hold on to. Kneeling on the hard cement, my hands clenching, a singlet of sweat oozed out of my body. The object before me was a memory ornament, intended to remind me of the impossible world of E and I wanted it to go away. I squeezed my eyes shut. Aim. But I was on my own. Memory ornament. Invitation to the impossible. It was still my choice to accept or reject it. I knew amnesia was hovering in the foyer of my consciousness, waiting. The chaos of a world without rules, at least the rules I was used to, also hovered out there. I opened my eyes and moved incrementally towards chaos because that's where my girl was. The light changed. Heat lay on my back like a wool blanket fresh out of the dryer. I didn't have to turn around. I knew that. But maybe it wasn't chaos out there. Maybe it was freedom. Freedom from fear. Capital F. I stood up and brushed the marble flakes off of my pants. Then I turned. A vast and eerily silent crowd milled beyond the garage. Thousands of people, and an airsat's castle, and a high blue sky without clouds where a dozen or so giant soap bubbles drifted serenely, unnoticed by the multitude. All was utterly quiet until I crossed out of the garage, and then it struck me like a Phil Spector wall of sound, the surf roar of the crowd and brassy clamor of a New Orleans street band. It was hot and dazzlingly bright. A trombone bell flashed the sun at me. I shaded my eyes. Mickey Mouse was working the crowd. Then I saw Amy, waving. 
I felt a big goofy grin on my face, which was appropriate. I'm going to Disneyland, I yelled, and ran to her. And that was our story. I hope it turns out well. I've got a story unspooling in my head about what the honeymoon must be like. We're delighted to have a returning sponsor this week. It's Dreaming Mind Hand Bookbinding. Owner Don Drake was very happy with the response he got to our endorsement last year and asked if I could talk some more about some of the other uses people have found for Dreaming Mind. As a book junkie, I really do love the quality of his work, so I'm happy to. One idea I'd never thought of that he was telling me about was birthday books. These are small journals with a page for every day of the year, but no actual year on them. The idea is you keep them year after year and write down birthdays and anniversaries and other important events. So you just open up to the day and anything you want to celebrate or remember is right there. If you've got a New Year's resolution to strengthen ties with your family and friends, this seems like a perfect way to do it. You can find Don's work at dreamingmind.com. And you can find pictures of one of his books gradually filling up with novel notes on our forums. We've got feedback this week for our last story of 2006, Robert Silverberg's When We Went to See the End of the World. Beyond some general approbation for getting a Silverberg story, response to this one was actually fairly mixed. Colin said, Must have been too subtle for me. I kept waiting for some kind of clever denouement which never really came. Simon simultaneously praised the story for its clever world-building and criticized it for the cookie-cutter characters and that same lack of an ending. Jonathan pointed out that the generic characters were actually deliberate, that these people were so self-absorbed in doing and outdoing each other that they lost their individuality, and, as Will the Computer Guy also said, kept missing that what was going on around them was as tragic as the end of the world they were visiting. And several asked, why was the end of the world different every time? I don't know the answer either, but I'll bet just because it was good for repeat business. We've bought several more Silverberg stories, and we'll be bringing them to you over the course of the year. Oh, and one more note, that 300-word flash fiction contest is still going on through the end of the month, so if you've got anything you'd like to send us, there's still time. I've posted the first few dozen stories for judging on the forums. You do need to register before you can see them there, and I've really been blown away by the quality and originality of some of these works. From the comments we're seeing on the forums, I know I'm not the only one. So read them all for yourself, and vote for your favorites, at forum.escapeartists.info. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is released on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. All of the rights are reserved by our authors. For scary stuff, try our horror podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. And for a great gift idea, why not some Escape Pod collections, at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can find them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quote comes from Josephine Baker. He was my cream, and I was his coffee. And when you poured us together, that was something. We'll see you next week. Have fun. Have fun.